the battles and rewards. As you know, as we've been continuing here in the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 1 through 11 takes us through a part of a summary of the sequence of things that took place, not only um, capturing what we've learned in the first four books of the Torah, but even in this book here, we see in these first few chapters, all the way to chapter 11, is a recap of before they're going into the promised land. They're just on the east east side of the Jordan River. As you can visualize the map in your mind of Israel and the Jordan running north and south, the promised land being on the west side of the Jordan, they're all camped out on the east side of the Jordan. They've come from Egypt to cross the desert, the wilderness, and work their way up, ready to go into there. And God uses Moses as a leader to continue to now refresh the next generation. Because remember that the generation of those 40 years in the wilderness had, because of unbelief, because of rebellion, they had to perish in the wilderness. Now the new generation is raised up. Those who were under 25 years of age, remember anyone who was 25 and older, Perished, the ones who were younger and grew up and, of course, uh, during those 40 years and then was born during those 40 years, now need to be refreshed in understanding of, the, of God's word. That is what we're capturing. And we will finish that, Lord willing, up to chapter 11 tonight of this part of the book of recapping of, uh, there for the people, the Israel, to understand. And so we're going to see battles and rewards here in these three chapters. We start here in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, with the difficulties of the battles ahead that God is showing Moses, who Moses, before he dies here, remember, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Uh, and so he is still fully engaged in the ministry, even though he knows God said he's going to end and does not go into the promised land. He does not give up on the ministry. He continues to his last breath to continue to be in God's will and to do God's work. And he didn't sit back and say, well, I'm going to die. And God said, I'm not going to I'm just going to do nothing. That's not ever an attitude of one who has a heart to serve God. You never just, just let it go because you just don't feel like it. You continue to do what God's called you to do to your last breath. And it says right here, O hero Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go into the into, uh disposes nations greater than mightier than yourself, cities and greater and fortified up to heaven. To a people great and tall, the descendants of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anakim? So we see here right in the very beginning, the first battle of the difficulties is, is facing the giants when they go in there. But God was leading Israel into something so big, so huge, that they could visually see and they could visually hear and the history that these are giants and this is not going to be easy. But God is asking us to hit them to go in and conquer the land and take possession of the land. It's the promised land that God has been promising since Abraham. And so God is going to take them into this huge challenge, this big challenge. And it was a challenge they could only meet and be able to accomplish by trusting God. This task that God is asking them to do, they said there's no possible way. You're right. It is impossible if you're relying upon your flesh. But with God, you must trust him. And by faith, he's going to do the work and lead you to do what he's called you to do. You must do it by faith. 
And so you're supposed to depossess these nations greater and mightier than yourselves. God was leading Israel into something so big that they could not. They understood the fortified cities. They understood how great they were. They were, seemed to reach to the heavens. It must have been huge because some of the cities, as we know historically, were on these huge mountains. And they were just hard to even try to penetrate, let alone get to. And they're just, they were just mighty cities and tall. But God said, We're going to, I'm going to do this in this impossible battle, but trust in God, because no way you, Israel, could do this in your flesh or in your own strength. But God commanded them to do it. God commanded, said, we're going to move forward. And obviously, God did not inspire Israel with some false sense of um, confidence or some hype them up we can do it we can do it we can do it like the little train going up the hill you can do it you can none of that hype was going here that's not what it's that's not how you trust in the lord is being hyped up by someone to get you motivated let's have a motivation speaker come in and get us to go conquer this community for the lord you know that that's that's just fleshly ways of thinking of things it's a fleshly way of approaching things God says, I'm the one that's going to give you the empowerment. I'm the one that's going to equip you. I'm the one that's calling you to do this work. I'm the one that's going to open up doors and and take down giants and and move you through fortified walls and buildings and gates that you don't think, how are you going to get in there and share the gospel uh, to this group of people? And how are you going to go over and encourage the faith over here? And how are we going to help those who are in war-torn cities overseas? And how are we going to help? These things God is going to do through you not some hype not some unrealistic uh, you know confidence in battle but God's going to do it Matthew 16 24 says it very clearly if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me God never promised some peace easy path doing his work it, it was going to take a, a promise that he was going to take you through these battles and they were going to be difficult. But look at verse 3. Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. Don't forget this. I'm asking you to go, go forward. I'm going to lead you. And oh, by the way, I'm going to take my consuming fire and I'm going to just blaze right through this place and make a path for you to get through. There's nothing going to stop me from moving through. Which then you follow me, that's why you're going to be able to go through it. Because it's my consuming fire. I'm going to make this. And it's this victory that I'm going to give you. He says, he will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. That's why Moses say, understand today. We're not talking about tomorrow. We're talking about today. Let's focus on what today, what God's called you to do. And he says that just as, as much as Israel had to understand the impossible battle that they saw in front of them from their own eyes perspective, God is telling Moses to tell these people, understand, this is not a question. We're going to have certain certainty of victory. Victory will be in the Lord, and the Lord's going to do the battling, and he's going to make a way, and you're going to come in and do the cleanup of what God is going to do for you in front of you. So, again, it was a battle too big for Israel, but it is not too big for the Lord. Israel could know both all the facts, but and it can come to that impossible job of understanding. There's absolutely no way this is going to happen, but you have to remember John 15, 5 for us. Without me, you can do nothing. 
But Philippians 4.13 tells us if I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he's the one that's strengthening me and guiding me and bringing me through this next battle. Regardless of the giant, regardless of the, uh, how impossible we're going to move forward, how impossible this is going to happen. But if God has said, this is what I want you to do, not something you want and you're trying to get God to make and make it happen for you. No, no, God is telling you and I what he wants us to do. That is the assurity of victory. But if you're sitting there going, I'm going to have victory, I'm going to have victory, and I've got the pumped up to go victory, and God now help me because I'm not sure how this is going to happen. No, no, we want to be doing what God's asking us to do and let him lead. And he says he will destroy them. God was also calling Israel to be in partnership in winning the battles that God is going to take them one after another, after another, after another. We see that in 2 Corinthians 6, 1. Workers together with him to accomplish much. But it wasn't going to be some slow, drawn-out battle. God said to them, it's going to destroy them quickly. God did not want the Israelites to show mercy to these Canaanites. These, these people were going to have this, I'm going to go in, it's going to be quick, and you're going to destroy them quickly because they are absolutely dark. And they're going to destroy you as a, a nation and others around if we do not take them out quickly. Verse 4 through 6, we see when God gives them victory, there's a warning that God is giving them as a nation. Because God is going to do some mighty things, and we know that in the scriptures. But look at here. Do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into, in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or, your, or the uprightness of your heart that you go into to possess this, their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations that, that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for, it is a, for you are a stiff-necked people. So here's what happens sometimes when you have victory. And God warns them, you're going to get victory, and you're just going to accomplish these battles and these, these things in, in front of you that are absolutely hate you and destroy you. I'm going to take them down. You're going to wipe them out. And you're going to have a tendency in your own heart, be very careful, pride is going to creep up like you did this work. That in your heart, I, I was righteous, and that's why God allowed me to have victory over this in my life. And I have victory over this enemy of mine, because I am righteous, and that is why. No, he made it very clear. It's not because of your righteousness at all. You're a stiff-necked people. You're as rebellious and stiff-necked and stubborn as ever can be. That is not, that is, I'm doing this because of the fact that I am trying to, God is saying, I'm going to take out this, this wickedness so that it make way for fulfilling my promise in and through, this, through my people. So it's not your righteousness, so don't humble yourself because really, this really gives us a picture about grace, is it not? Because it's a preview of the salvation by grace through faith. And it's not by works. 
in which we cannot think it is our righteousness that has obtained salvation because we're somehow righteous or we did really good works and that's why we earn and could earn salvation. That's not how it works, my brothers and sisters. You and I know we're saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, period. There is nothing righteous in us. Our clothes are filthy rags <laughs> or anything we can offer and do. It is all about Jesus and what he has done on the cross. It's his righteousness. It's Jesus Christ who we have received his righteousness. And when we receive any gift from God, we are tempted to take it and use it to glorify ourselves. And that is why we have to be very careful. And that's why they're, they're being warned. If God provides you a gift and, and gives you a reward or shows you, in this case, the promised land that they're going to give you, make sure you stay humble because he's not giving it because you deserve it. He's doing it by grace because even though you don't deserve it, he's still going to give it to you. Why? Because you're a stiff-necked people. You've been a rebellious. You're not, you're not being submissive to God's direction in your life. You still want to fight and want your own way of life. Then he continues here in verse 7. He says, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Remember, he's, he's reminding them that characteristic of that stiff neckness there. The past failure sometimes helps them to understand. Stay humbled. Remember, God is in control. He's brought you through this by his grace. Why are you going back? Why would you even think about turning back? Because God's purpose is to remind Israel of the rebellious, rebelliousness against him was not to discourage them, but to make them feel, or make them feel defeated in any way. But the purpose was so that they would recognize their weaknesses and recognize they must 100% trust in God to live this life. And he reminds them and communicates. In the New Testament, we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Sometimes we have to be reminded, hey, I know where I came from and what by God's grace what he's brought me and brought me through many victories and overcome many giants in my life and, and many situations. And by his grace, he's brought me through this changed life. And I'm, I'm reminded, I don't want to go back to there. I'm not going to go back there. I'm going to continue to praise and worship God because of the fact that he has given me victory. But it's only because of his grace and his strength and his abilities that I can still stand here and in his righteousness and recognize a stand in this relationship with God that he gives me. When we remember our sinful nature, we will walk in the poverty of spirit, Jesus said in that essential life of blessing in Matthew 5, 3. He continues here in eight, verses 8 through 21, remembering the rebellion there at Mount Horeb. So he's going to remind them of what took place during this formation time in the wilderness at the base of that Mount Sinai, the Mount Horeb. And he says, also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. And when I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread or drank water. 
Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of the forty days and forty nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone and the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, and they have made themselves a molded image. Remember the, the calf, the golden calf that they imaged there? Uh, furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, I have seen these, these people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Verse 14, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make you a nation mightier and greater than they. I'm willing to start over, God said, and build a whole other nation because of these stiff-necked people who are rebellious against me. Remember, can you picture it? They're all at the base of that mountain. God shows up for 40 days, 40 nights. The fire and the smoke and the voice of God from the mountaintop. And Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, the two tablets. to go. All the people heard God's word directly from him, what he wrote on those tablets. That did not stop them from their fleshly cardinal ways and creating an idolatry and creating that golden calf. So many times people, if I only heard the word of God and his voice would speak to me directly, I wouldn't do the sin in my life. I wouldn't have idols. I wouldn't do these things. You obviously don't know the scripture. <laughs> An entire nation heard them and they still turned against God. You have to choose to obey God's word you have to decide that not your flesh so he says in verse 15 so i turned and came down from the mountain and the mountain burned with fire and the two tablets of the covenant here in their in my two hands and i looked and behold you had sinned against the lord your god had made for yourselves a molded calf you had turned aside quickly from the way which the lord has commanded you and then i i took the two tablets threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water. He was fasting for these people. Because of, your, of all your sin which you have committed in, in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire, crushed it, and ground, ground it very small until it was as fine as dust, and I threw it threw its dust into the brook that descended from the mountain. So Moses is recapping to this people, hey, God was so angry with you. I interceded for Aaron, who was that first priest. He was the brother. He was supposed to watch over the people, but he did not. And God was so angry with that. He angry with you. He would have torched you, but I've interceded for you. Don't you know I'm praying and fasting for you? You guys are still this rebellious, this stiff neck, and you are not hearing, you're not listening. God could have absolutely wiped you out. 
But God, by his grace, didn't wipe you out. And so we see here in the scripture how Moses is pleading with them that they need to learn these lessons to be obedient to God's word when they go into the promised land. Don't repeat the same mistakes as the previous generation. And he sat there and he took that golden calf, he crushed it, put it into people's drinking water, into that, that brook there. And it shows how that God, this little God, this little G, this little calf, was nothing and could be destroyed so easily. And they were worshiping that? Then the mighty God that was displaying his Shekinah glory on top of the Mount Horeb, you were going to worship a calf? You burnt your own little fire down here and created your own little God when the God of the creation of heaven and the earth is on top and you're going to focus on the idols of this world versus the God of creation? There are consequences, Moses was saying, for their sin. But by God's grace, he spared them. Look in verse 22 through 24. He talks about three different are four different uh, situations here. He says, also at Terabah and Massa and Kibroth Hatava, who provoked the Lord to wrath. Likewise, the Lord sent you from Kedesh Barnea, saying, go up and possess the land which I have given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you did not believe him nor obey his voice. And you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So he shows here these different times. And if you don't remember the situations there, if you remember that Terabah, that means burning. We see it back in Numbers chapter 11 when people of Israel left Mount Sinai to head toward Kadesh Barnea, which is the next step before going, again, the promised land that they had, but immediately started complaining to God, if you remember. And, and God set fires of judgment against him at the place they called Terabah, uh, Taborah, uh, because of the burning fires of God's judgment, because they just were rejecting and they were just they, they were just complaining, and God was going to judge. If you remember Massa in Exodus seventeen seven, that describes when the, this this place called Massa, which means tempted, because there Israel provoked God. Remember, by doubting His loving care. And concerned uh, for them in the wilderness. They said, God really doesn't care. He's leaving us out here to die. And, and why would he do this? And God doesn't love us. And, and he said, wait a minute. You're provoking the Lord. This, God is perfect, protecting you and provided you through. Brought you through the Red Sea. Brought you through the attacks and the hungers and the thirst. And you're telling me your God doesn't love you? Are you kidding me? How foolish. Then there, there's Kibroth. Hatava, that means graves of craving. It's a place where Israel longed for the meat. Remember, I, we can't we just have meat like back in Egypt? Manna is not enough, you know. They're just complaining and constantly looking for more for the flesh and to eating the, and discontent and greedy uh, for those months. And again, it brought tremendous um, turmoil uh, against them coming against, uh, against God in that Numbers chapter 11. And when then the Lord sent you to Kadesh Barnea, if you remember that, it's that whole rebellion, that whole Israel doubting God's 
uh, love for them and refusing to enter into the promised land there, which then brought uh, tremendous challenges in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, and that which what sent them back into the wilderness wandering around for the 40 years. But that all happened when he says there at the end of verse 20, uh, 24 where you do not believe him nor obey his voice. It was all of Israel's dis, um, disobedience to God, their unbelief that caused all of this. And each of those moments, it provoked God because of their unbelief, because they disobeyed what God was asking them to do. Then we see in verse 25 through 29 here of chapter 9, the intercession prayer for Israel um, when they went through this. It says, Thus I uh, prostrated myself before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and I kept prostrating myself because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Therefore I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you um, have brought out of Egypt with your mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and do not look on the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought you, you God, brought us, uh, brought us should say, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to kill them in the wilderness, and yet your people... And your inheritance, and whom you brought out of your mighty, by your mighty potter, and by your outstretched arm. So Moses is just again recapping. He says, to, interceding to God. You can hear him praying and just prostrated down on the ground and fasting. And God, remember, this is your reputation. Please, God, don't do this to your people because all the enemies are going to use this to turn against you and say how you're not a mighty God. You couldn't help your people get to the promised land. You couldn't provide the people and all these things because of their rebellion. People are, and the enemy just doesn't look at the fact that these were rebellious people against their God. The enemy has a tendency to say, oh, look at their God. Look what they, I thought their God was going to help them through their sickness or help them through this, this situation of poverty and help them to that. I thought God that you followed and you said it was a great God was going to help you and to meet your needs. Again, many times it's because of our un, disobedience and rebelliousness that we find ourselves in situations. But the enemy takes it and says, that is your God. That is, it's your God has allowed you that had to happen. And it turns it against God. And that's what Moses is saying. And interesting, it, remember, this is your reputation. This is who you are. And I don't want the people of this world to, to look at you and say that you took them out just to kill your people. That's not, that's not, we understand, that's not what you want to do, God. But please, allow this rebellious, stubborn people of yours that I'm leading, that you've called me to lead, show mercy, please. Show mercy upon Israel because they are God's people. And God, obviously, his leader, Moses, had the right heart to lead his people. And it's through that heart and that intercession and to understand and lead his, God's people to understand 
to put their eyes back on God. So look what happened in verse chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. We see God's plan for this recovery from this. And it says, At the time the Lord said to me, Hew yourself two tablets of stone first, like the first, and come up to me on the mountain, make yourself an ark of wood, and I will write in on the tablets of the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, and the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain, in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. If you notice, as I read that, the first two tablets, God created the tablets, wrote with his finger on those Ten Commandments, gave them to Moses. Moses took them down. Moses threw them down. Probably out of the anger, out of just response, and show that you broke God's commandments. Now this time, notice, Moses had to create those two tablets himself out of stone, carry them back up the mountain, then God wrote on them and he brought them back down. But we see that this is, again, to reestablish, these are the Ten Commandments. This is God's word. This is what the expectations are. These are God-breathed words, and they're written with his own finger, Scripture, on these tablets for you and I, or they there must follow. Getting right with God after a time of rebellion must always begin and center on God's words. Let me say that again. You find yourself rebelling against God's word, against God and what he's called you. What, how do you reestablish? How to restore? How do you come back from that rebellious state of heart? It begins and centers back on the word of God. What does God's word say? We must come back. Repentance and a revival comes back to God's people when they focus on God's word again. You can go back and read an account there of Joshua and King Judea in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses chapter 8 through 23. You'll, you'll see that all played out. In verse 6 and 9 of chapter 10, we see now this, this, this picture of Jesus coming into the, into the play, but it starts with a picture of the priesthood. Look what happens here. Now the children of Israel, in verse 6, journeyed from the wells of Bina, Jachon, and Moserah, where Aaron died and where he was buried. And Eleazar, his son, ministered as priest in his stead. From there, they journeyed to Gudgoda, and from Gudgoda, and Jotbatha, and the land of rivers of water, at the time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren, and the Lord in his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. So this is where we see the reminder of God establishing the priesthood. It starts it through the tribe of Levi. 
speaks about this priesthood, demonstrating the need for priestly sacrifices, the intercessions, and to, 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 to represent the people coming to God uh, after a time of rebellion. And Israel needed that sacrifice. They needed the intercession. They needed that blessing that the Levites would bring to the, for the nation from God. And so that's how God set it up. And it's, and it's getting right with God. After that rebellion, coming back to God's word, what does God's word say about this? How do I change? How do I get right with God in regards to uh, focusing on what is right and good? And it's that focus through that priestly ministry that, that they said you need to bring your sacrifice and, and then they would intercede for you to God through those sacrifices. But you and I know in the New Covenant, this priestly ministry of Jesus on our behalf. We come to Jesus when we've rebelled and we come back to the word. He is the word. We come back to Jesus and his atonement for our sins at the cross and his intercession for us in heaven because he sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for you and I as, as children of God and the blessing that he brings to us from heaven because of that relationship because we put our trust in him and him alone for that finished um, salvation, that work, that free gift he's given us. That is the picture here that God set up in the Old Testament and fulfilled through Jesus Christ that the ultimate perfect priest. We see in verse 10, 11 that Israel needed to move on now. Once you've rebelled, you've repented, you seek the Lord's truth, you come to his word, you've, you've settled right, you're now to move on. You cannot continue to live in the past mistakes. You can never dwell on the past mistakes. You just need to know by God's grace what he's brought you from. But he's going to now encourage them that we have to move on toward the promised land. Okay, God has brought you back through. There's a lot of history there. But God gave Moses that command. Now is time to move on. It's time to go into that promised land. He says in verse 10, As at the first time I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord also heard me at that time, and the Lord chose not to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers and to give them. So God is sitting there saying, It's time to move on, man. It's time to move on, Moses. Start leading the people to the promised land. It's done. It's the sacrifice, the intercession. Let's move on to what God has asked us to go and do. Then we see in verse 12 and 13, And now in Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you to today for your good. So what does the Lord require <coughs> of his people? It's right there. It's a nice summary in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. To fear the Lord, to, to awe him, to in being, just, to, in, just to be an understanding of who he is, the creator of the universe, and to have this awe and this fear of understanding, and to walk according to his ways. What? To do what? To love him, to serve, and to then also, uh, with all your heart and with all your soul, you're just, you're just loving on and serving and doing what God's called you and to keep the commandments of God and his statutes that he's commanded. This is what God has called us to do even today. Love the Lord and love others. Two great commandments. That's all of these ten commandments. All of the law and the prophets all hang off of those two great commandments that we see in the New Testament that Jesus said, love the Lord God. Love, love, the, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Love others. That's what the Lord requires of his people. 
Why does God require this from Israel? Well, you see in verse 14 and 15, indeed heaven in the highest heavens. I love that. Have you ever seen that before? Indeed heaven and the highest heavens, plural, belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and to have he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples as it is this day. God requires that this conduct from his people. He can set expectations for his people. That he is his, that his special possession is his people. And even though you look at the heavens and you look at the earth and it belongs to God, he sets the focus, he sets the attention, and it's all on Israel beginning with his, their fathers and the promises that God gave them. They were a chosen people. They're still God's chosen people, having that special attention of God focused upon them. A special privilege, a great privilege. But understand, with great privilege, with great responsibility, comes obedience. When God has set you aside to do something for him, and he's called you there, that comes with great expectations, responsibilities, but especially obedience to what God's called you to do. We see in verse 16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. <laughs> so God says, I've, play, I've, I've made it very clear you're a stiff-necked, rebellious people. You can't be like that anymore. I've chosen you. I've set you aside. I've set you apart from the world. I have changed your life. I've given you promises. I have a plan and a purpose for your life for the future. You cannot continue to be rebellious people against me. Moses, you can't go against God. Keep, stop fighting. Stop being rebellious. You must. And he says there, you need to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You need to, you need to cut off the flesh that you continue to live. And, then, and they set this up. God set this, this, this outward sign of commitment that it's his people and all the males among Israel had to be circumcised eight days after they were born. And it's through this minor surgery was merely a symbol for the real work of cutting away the flesh that God desired in their life. You've got to cut off that fleshly life. You've got to stop following the ways of the world. You've got to stop following after what the flesh craves. And this is an outward sign of making a covenant with me. You're my people. You must give your hearts and incline them to me. After the Spirit. And be no longer stiff-necked. It's not who you are. We see in Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. There has to be an inner transformation in your life. You can't say you're God, you're, you're God, you're a child of God, you follow God, you're a Christian, and then not be transformed. And not change. You continue to live by the flesh. You continue to live you by the world. That's not how it works. Transformation that only God can bring in and through your life. If you allow him to do that sanctification as a child of God. 
Then we see in verses 17 through 22 that call to that obedience, call to that reverence, call to that compassion. Look what he says here. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who show no partiality nor takes a bribe. He ministers justice to the fatherless and the widow and, the lo- and loves the stranger and give him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. God is a just God. He doesn't show any partiality. You can't bribe him. You can't manipulate him as the judge or the one overseas. He has compassion. He loves strangers. Where does he love strangers? He has reverence. You can take oaths in his name. Why? Because all of those things, reverence and justice and compassion, these are characteristics of God that we follow. And he's an awesome and great God. He has done mighty things. And when you see this, we are to praise him. Because he's praiseworthy. We praise him, we worship him because he's praiseworthy. He is our praise. Now in verse 11, we see here in verses 1 through 7, remember the ways God has always blessed. He says, therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God and his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh king of Egypt and to all of his land, what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, and how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued him or pursued you, and how the Lord your Lord has destroyed them to this day, what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Elib, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their households, their tents, and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all of Israel. But your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord which he did." So he's sitting here and Moses reminds him that God commanded Israel to love him. We're to love God. Love is not a matter left entirely on impulse. It's not love is not just an impulse or it's not left to our just our feelings. I don't feel like loving. No, no, this is not the life we're talking about. We must choose to love God or not. To love God regardless of how you feel. That is the commitment. That is a decision you must make in your life. And he's reminding them, you must decide. It reminds us what the Lord really wants from you and I. Love. He created us for us to love him. That's what he created us for. He, we could give him a hundred of the other things. 
But none of it really matters unless we give him our love. Jesus said in Ephesian, it said to the Ephesian church there in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. If we lost our love for God, we've lost it all. If our love for God grows cold, you have lost it. And you may not even realize you're spiraling down. What is it in this world that you think is more important than the love of God? Whatever that is, it's an idol. It's your golden calf that you're dancing around with. That has got to go. Anything or anyone or anybody who hinders you to be able to love God, you have to acknowledge and bring that to forefront and you must deal with that. Because you, as a child of God, have a jealous God. He wants no idol, nothing, get between you and him and his relationship. And he'll go to great lengths to remove what it is, that golden calf that's in your life. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Jesus always shows us in the scripture, it's always about obedience. If you love me, you'll obey my word. That's how you can measure it. Am I, do, I, do, I, do I love God? Well, are you obedient to his word? Well, I think I am. <laughs> it's a clue that you're probably not focused. Are you reading his word? No, I don't read his word. So how would I don't have to know it? Then I don't know if I'm obedient or not. See, you can play the games, but God knows the heart. He wants us to draw close to you because he wants to draw close to you. He, he wants us to draw close to him because he wants to draw close to you. Why? Because he loves you. Who are this, these two guys, this Dathan and Abram? These were the, the two associates that they were the instigators that, at that rebellion of Korah in number 16, where God vindicated because they turned against Moses, the Israel, uh, to Mo, against Miz, uh, Moses, and was getting the people and the leaders of Israel to come against when Korah and Dathan and Abram challenged Moses' leadership. And God said, I'm not going to have any. I'm, you, anytime you start challenging God's man and and the spiritual leader over his people, be very careful. You are absolutely in danger. You're going against God when you go against the leader. Verse 8. The blessings that come in the new land. Therefore, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today, and that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you crossed over to possess, and that you may prolong your days in the land which God swore to give your fathers and to them and their descendants, and a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt which you have come, where you sowed your seeds and watered it by foot. Uh, by it, uh, foot as vegetables, gardens, but the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven and a land of which the Lord your God care, cares. 
The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rains that you may gather in your your grain, your new wine, and your oil, and I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. He's just such a beautiful promise. Is just, I pour out my blessing upon you in the work of your hands and your land and what you do for a living. In this case, work the land, it's, and I'm going to make sure it's prosperous, and your animals are going to be good, and your land's going to be good, and all that. But but you, you must serve God with all your heart, with all your soul. You must move forward. And he says, he promised these people, these Israel, Israelites, I'm going to allow the rain to come in in this season. He controls all these things. He controls the land. He controls the rain. He controls what happens, even though you think you have control. And he's reminding them of what God has done historically for them. And when there were great obedience... There was just great blessing. And there would be more blessing if they would just be obedient and first seek him and to do what he's called. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. It's a promise of God for you and I as a child of God. Verse 16, what happens with the danger of blessing here? It's back to the warning again. Take heed to yourself, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord, Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, and the land yield no product or produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So again, the warning comes. You, you, God's blessing you, and there's really great harvest, and everything's going great, and you're just, oh, this is just so beautiful. But then you, get, you forget that it's God doing this work, and you get the danger of turning away from God and wrapping yourself up into the prosperity and the things and the things that the world may offer now because you're so wealthy from it all. And he says, be careful because you're just going to spiral right back out. And he can shut those heavens up just as easy as he opened them up. You know, there's a constant need for God's reign. It reminds us how it's a constant dependence on God. We must have a constant dependence upon God in our life. Because it's good for us to have things that keep us in constant dependence upon God. We should never despise. We should never be so critical of those things that we long for in a day that we no longer you know, can have. Because sometimes God just allows us to be in a position where we're having to continue to be that dependency upon him. Because it's good and it's right. Verse 18, therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and your soul and bind them as a sign in your hand. And they shall be your front, frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be, mul be multiplied 
multiplied in the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. He's saying, take God's word. Take God's word. Make sure it's always in the forefront of your head. Make sure it's always right there at the tip of your tongue in your hands and the doorpost. It should, word of God should surround you, coming and going from your house. And when you're lying and sitting and you're talking with your children and when you're by yourself, this is what God says is a good and right thing because you're constantly meditating and pondering on the keeping of the word of God in your life. That's what protects you. That is what brings the blessing here because God called Israel not to only read the word of God, but to know the word of God. It was to be like a treasure to them. It was supposed to be and brought in and meditated on day and night. It was just to be applied to their lives. And when he says to them, speaking of them, what does that mean? He says, speaking of them. Because God's word was to be the topic of their conversation, speaking of them. It really measures our love, does it not? It measures our love for God's word by how much we will take and talk about the God's word to others. It's a measurement for you and I in our lives. God doesn't want us to have a secret love for him. He wants us to make sure others know that we have a love for God. There's a generation that says, it's interesting when you're having a conversation with them, you find out that they know God and that they, they, they follow God and they have a prayer uh, life and everything else. It's like, but I've known you for 20 years. I have never heard you ever once talk about God. Well, that's just me and God. The word, the, God's word says you were to share the love of God that's in our hearts and who he is to you and share it with other people and sharing the gospel. That's what the word of God says. This isn't to say to keep it a secret. We're to share it. Verse 22 through 25. For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, and then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, that's the Mediterranean, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you, and the Lord your God will put the dread uh, of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. He says right here, this is the promise of blessing here, the choice. You have a choice, my people. Are you going to be obedient and do what I've called you to do, to go, to go into the promise and possess the land, or you're going to choose not to follow and be obedient? What's your choice tonight? What's your choice today? Will you choose to be obedient and follow him and do what he, his commandments and follow and do and let God lead the way of your life? Will you love the Lord your God? Will you walk all his ways? Will you hold fast to him tonight? Will you allow him to drive out any 
Any more, any giants, any, any, any walls or barriers that is, is hindering you from growing in your relationship with him and hindering you for doing what God's called you to do? Will you let him fight that battle with you, for you? In verse 26 through 28, we see the choice that blessing versus cursing. This is what happens in that choice is, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you to, today to go after other gods which you have not known. Right, what's your choice? Are you going to follow me that I've revealed myself to you? Are you going to follow me, the God of the heavens and the earth? Are you going to choose to be cursed because you choose to follow other little gods? Follow your own way, follow the things of the world. There is a consequence. The curse is, was deserving to be laid upon him. Because he's choosing to walk away from God. We see another curse. We see it in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, when the curse that we deserved of our disobedience was laid upon Jesus, our Savior. Why? Because there was an inherited curse of consequences of our disobedience. And under the new covenant, Jesus does not punish us or curse us. Because all that we deserve, all the past, all the present, all the future, was poured upon Jesus on that cross. All the, all the rebellion, all the stiff-neckedness, all the sins was placed upon the shoulders of our Lord. And he paid that penalty. He took the curse. But here we see that God tells Moses to tell the people, I set before you the, to you this day. If you want to be blessed, they should walk in obedience. If they disobey, they are going to be walking in a curse. The choice was a requirement for them to make. Verse 29 through 32. Now it all shall be, it shall be when the Lord your God was brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebel. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite of Gilgal beside the Terebith tree of Moreh? For you will cross over the Jordan and go into in to possess the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you will possess it and dwell in it, and you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. So he's at this very end of this part of the letter, this 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 section here, again talking about, preparing, reminding the people that they, they have a choice to follow God and be obedient or not to follow God and find the consequences that come from that. They could get a curse. For us, we don't get cursed. 
we get disciplined as a child of God. We do not face the judgment. We face discipline from our loving Father who is going to chasten his children if we are disobedient. So we must come to a same thing. Once we find ourselves rebelling, if we find ourselves being disobedient, we find that we don't want to follow the word of God, God is going to bring a conviction in our hearts to bring us to the same point. What do you choose for yourself today? Are you going to be obedient or are you going to continue to be disobedient and stiff-necked? And the conviction by the Spirit of God that lives within us as a child of God brings us to a point of being convicted so that we can open our eyes to our stiff-neckedness or our rebellion so that God can bring us to our knees to repent and to turn around and like all rebellion, how you get restored is to come back to the word of God. Because the word of God will transform your mind, but it will also refresh you and to encourage you and to remind you of the promises of God. So we must come back to the word of God. That's why we study. 